This is something I learned from a colleague in disability studies that sometimes people have trouble following along with a purely spoken presentation. Um, I think there are about half a dozen copies, so there may not be quite enough, but I'll try to speak slowly as well. The title for my talk today riffs off Joan Scott's influential gender and the politics of history. I first read it as an undergraduate not long after it was published in 1988, so I'm dating myself with that. I used it uh, in my undergraduate thesis work at Stanford, and I've returned to it periodically through the years. When Yasmin prompted me for a title for this talk, Gender and the Politics of Islamic Studies came to mind as a gesture of respect toward a work that was formative for me. I chose it even though I've long since forgotten most of the book's substantive content. <laughs> though she more recently wrote about Muslims and headscarves in France, uh, Scott then wrote, wrote mostly about women, gender, and labor history in pre-20th century France. Um, I used her work not for the France content, but for the methodological and theoretical approach. I recall very clearly a few key phrases. Um, gender as an analytic category, the social construction of sexual difference, and above all, the core concept that gender is a way of signifying power. As I reflected a little bit more in the aftermath of having given this title um, about my in impulsive choice, I realized actually that it's quite revealing about how scholars build our foundations. The things we read early are often disproportionately influential on our future work. We integrate their insights into what we do over many years, including in our ongoing scholarship, and also, if we become faculty, into our teaching and advising. Indeed, I brought Scott and her insights with me to Duke, where I began my graduate training. In the 90s, the venture of Islamic studies at Duke was essentially Hodgsonian. And the fact that this conference is organized by the Islamicate Graduate Students Association attests to Marshall Hodgson's continuing influence. Our year-long Islamic Civ survey, uh, in which a handful of graduate students were sprinkled among a much larger number of undergraduates, was structured around the epic posthumous three-volume venture of Islam. Now, my final course paper surveyed recent scholarly literature, then recent scholarly literature, they're not classics, on Muslim women and gender in Islam, arguing for revising the Islamic civ syllabus to include some of that work. Rather than advocating a wholesale reorganization of the course, as some women's historians were doing in their fields, criticizing standard periodizations and emphases, I made much more modest proposals. I suggested keeping the course's chronological structure and its main the thematic emphases, but supplementing Hodgson and perhaps replacing some of the secondary course texts with these newer publications. To give just two examples, I suggested Denise Spellberg's Gender, Politics, and the Islamic Past, The Legacy of Aisha bint Abi Bakr, for the unit on early Muslim history. It covers sectarianism, the formation of Sunni thought, and more. 
I recommended approaching Ottoman history not with a ponderous biography of Mehmet the Conqueror, which now that the statute of limitations has expired, I can uh, confess that I didn't read in its entirety, <laughs> mea maxima culpa, um, but with Leslie Pierce's The Imperial Harem, which offers a nuanced take on what Hodgson had superciliously dismissed as harem politics. If I recall correctly, I got an A on the final paper, which eventually circulated in photocopy uh, among my student colleagues, which again tells you how long ago it was that that was the tech we used. Um, when I began teaching several years later, its suggested readings formed the core of my seminar on women, gender, and Islam, in which I don't assign Scott, but I do explain the key concepts around gender, history, and language that she uses and which are foundational to some of the historical works that my class there reads. Scott's insight about how the language of power is gendered also helps us understand the hierarchies of prestige that operate in our field in Islamic studies. Now, as scholars, we seldom bring our analytical powers honed on our source text, like children's books or Muslim social networks in the triangle, to bear on our own professional contexts, the texts that are produced within our disciplines, the dynamics of our conferences, our meetings with our advisors. But these constitute an important archive for us to reflect on. I won't give a long history of Orientalism today, either the professional discipline or the epithet, um, or venture a full account of contemporary Islamic studies. We do have to begin by acknowledging that the field of Islamic studies, the academic context in which Islamic studies operates, have been constituted by processes of gendered and racialized exclusions. And for two recent articles on this, we can look at the work of Aisha Chowdhury on Islamic legal studies and Suhaira Siddiqui um, generally on scholarship. The study of Islam and Muslims in the modern academy, the modern Western academy, uh, I think of as having descended from three ancestors. So we have Near Eastern studies, we have area studies, and we have religious studies. These strands, which are not neatly separate, overlap and intertwine, and they each bring distinct methodological and ideological legacies. They also carry gendered histories that still affect who does what. We find fewer women in Near Eastern languages and civilizations departments, like this all-male history of Nelk at Yale, which is proudly displayed on their website. I do not expect you to read the whole thing. Um, or doing philological work in other fields compared, say, to those who study American Muslim communities or modern developments among Muslims in South Asia. Of course, such distinctions aren't absolute, and there are women who've been important doing this textual work. Patricia Krona, Nabia Abbott, and Wadad al-Qadi, to name only three, and we'll just leave her up there to bless the room uh, for a moment. I do think, without going into numbers and statistics, uh, it's fair to say that male scholars are overrepresented in heavily textual fields, such as Islamic law, uh, the study of classical texts, and research into Muslim origins, 
which, not coincidentally, are still fields that have the reputation of being real Islamic studies at the same time as they have diminishing centrality at all but the most elite institutions, Yale, uh, for what most of us study. Of course, how we map the terrain covered by Islamic studies is essential. As Anna Gade has pointed out, naming subfields, Islamic legal studies, helps render them legitimate objects of academic study. You can define yourself that way and position yourself for a job that way and apply to certain journals. It's also subjective, defining what counts as, say, Quranic studies or the study of Islamic law is also gendered. With these fields defined in ways that define women, especially Muslim women doing constructive work, out. So Amina Wadud gets defined out of Quranic studies, or Ziba Mir Hosseini gets defined out of Islamic legal studies. Where work gets classified, you will not be shocked to hear, is partly a function of power. And the way work by non-male scholars gets read as first, often only about gender or sexuality when it touches on those topics at all, and second, as case studies or reportage rather than theory, affects how that work does, or more often doesn't, enter the canon. Canon is a very abstract contact, uh, construct, but let's think back to the Islamic Civ syllabus syllabus as a manifestation of canon. So I want to speak briefly to these two kinds of forms of exclusion. First, the way books that attend to women or gender, especially when written by women or non-binary scholars, are perceived and reviewed and taught as only about those things. So for instance, my book Marriage and Slavery in Early Islam tends to be treated as a book about gender not a book about law, even though it's both. Now, far more people interested in gender but not law have read it than those interested in law but not gender. That's true for Karen Bauer's study of how selective uptake of certain ideas happens in tafsir. It's true for Sadia Sheikh's study of Ibn Arabi's approach to theophany. Scholars of exegesis and Sufism have largely ignored them, while scholars of gender even if they work in other areas, have drawn on these books for their own scholarship. As for the second point, the theoretical models that non-male scholars develop and use in their work tend to be ignored, while elements of their case studies are pressed into service for other arguments and abstractions. Um, and I'll come back to this in a moment. Sabah Mahmoud's relentlessly theoretical politics of piety is notable precisely because it's such an anomaly in how it's been taken up. So these twin phenomena, treating work about gender as just about gender and treating women's work as just case studies, are linked. And they have an impact on how we define what's essential to our fields, including in the classroom. Now, I recently revised my Islamic law syllabus. It needed updating, as all syllabi eventually do, um, but it seemed particularly important to do so because it relied far too heavily, and had relied far too heavily for far too long, on men's books. Five of six of the books I assigned were by men. So suffice it to say that even feminists can have bad habits. 
I was seeking out recent literature and a colleague recommended Fred Donner's brief essay, Who's Afraid of Sharia Law? It has a great title, right? And it scans, who's afraid of the big bad wolf, who's afraid of Sharia law, the number of syllables matters for these things. Um, it's a solid overview of key themes for any halfway decent course on Islamic law, especially one that will be taught in a climate of high and rising anti-Muslim hostility. It's synthetic, as many intros are, without in-text references or notes, and it seemed fairly promising, especially insofar as Donner talked about gender issues repeatedly. Then I got to his bibliographic suggestions. The annotations show my in-the-moment reaction. Donner's further reading comprises five male-authored books plus one co-edited by two men in honor of one of the men whose book appears earlier in the list. Donner has high praise for these recommended books. They are, quote, a concise overview and an excellent introduction and exemplary and perceptive and, again, excellent. One of the books, which to my mind disappointingly downplays women's work on Islamic law, is, Donner advises, well-informed and engagingly written. I made public via Twitter my frustration with the exclusively male nature of Donner's list. A few men pushed back. What books on the same topics as the books he chose would I replace them with? Someone cynical might suspect that this type of questioning aims to raise the bar for any criticism of the status quo. If you've got to have an exhaustive solution anytime you criticize the way things are done, it's easier to stay quiet. Ditto if your solution is at the level of one-to-one -one replacement. It becomes making a case against a specific book in order to suggest an alternative. But let's presume good faith. It's still the wrong question. A better question would be, what would be good readings to suggest, given the audience Donner imagines and the topics discussed in his article? He mentions the veiling and seclusion of women, the vexed question of veiling, male guardianship of female relatives in the context of marriage, the, quote, wide range of juristic views on veiling, conflict between liberal attitudes toward women and restrictive views on women, and again, seclusion of women with a shift from women mostly unveiled to veiling now increasingly prevalent. In the course of the essay, he also makes brief references to prayer and to finance, and there's a longish section on intoxicants. But gender norms are by far the most frequent topic of discussion, discussed in six separate places. Coincidentally, much of the scholarship on women, gender, and law makes the key point that Donner most centrally emphasizes, the historical and contemporary diversity of perspectives contained under the rubric of Sharia. Yet not a single one of the books he recommends as further reading has women or gender as an explicit focus. And as I already noted, not one of them is by a scholar who isn't a man. This kind of curatorial practice directed at students and beginners 
is akin to Islamic Law and Society, the journal's recent list of 15 editor's picks for scholarly journal audiences. 14, including the ones on divorce, domestic privacy, and gender segregation are by men. Um, I'm not suggesting that men shouldn't write about gender. Please don't mistake that. This is a notably lower percentage of work by women than that found in the journal as a whole over the years the list covered. And I could say more about this, but for now, I just want to note that both lists direct the audience's attention in certain ways, have chosen among a universe of potential works and chosen these. But let's not leave that up there too long. Curation is a form of and inextricable from citation. In her germinal essay, Making Feminist Points, Sarah Ahmed terms citation a rather successful reproductive technology, a way of reproducing the world around certain bodies. Ways of thinking, patterns of citation reproduce authority and authoritative lines of inquiry that often are mostly white and mostly male. Victor Ray, building on the work of legal scholar Richard Delgado, talks about racial exclusions in citation as path dependency. Things that have been cited continue to get cited. He observes, and I quote, inequality is reproduced and whiteness is institutionalized by citation patterns as earlier periods of overt exclusion are legitimated by an almost ritualistic citation of certain thinkers. Path dependency is a very useful frame, but it's also only part of the story. We tend to think of certain kinds of paths as natural because they are well-trodden, but in fact, citation is, we might say, building on Ahmed, always already assisted reproduction. As Annette Yoshiko-Reed pointed out recently on Twitter, quote, maintaining closed networks is an active process. The networks don't stay closed by themselves. And these networks are self-reinforcing. Who gets cited is who gets read, is who gets invited to speak, is who gets cited, is who gets invited to collaborate, and so on and so on. We can't say what is chicken and what is egg. We can say that these connections are multi-layered and they're complex, and they are malleable with effort. So what kind of effort does it take to change things? I'll use the rest of my talk to address practical questions around inclusion in the range of professional activities that we undertake, with some special attention to questions that might confront graduate students. This is the first time I'm presenting this material publicly, and I want to preface it by saying two things. Um, first, I'm mostly talking about gender balance in projects, but I also talk a little bit about other forms of diversity. And it may be that, for instance, male scholars in the audience can adapt what I say about being asked to serve on all white panels to being asked to serve on all male panels. Second, and most importantly, I proceed with some trepidation here because I really think that the burden should mostly be on tenured faculty to be doing this kind of work. Um, the work of normalizing inclusion is not entirely without risks, and we can afford to take those risks. 
But the reality is that most graduate students will not get tenure track jobs, knocking on wood for everyone in this room. Um, three quarters of instructional positions in higher education now are not tenure track. So even apart from any other considerations, at some point, untenured and contingent scholars may have to make some of these choices and navigate some of these conversations. Um, and when I've shared the larger chapter from which these remarks are drawn, I've been encouraged to address the specific concerns of graduate students more directly. Um, so I do so in a preliminary way here, and I hope you'll help me think through what I've missed and what I've gotten wrong. Now, I'm just going to leave Sarah Ahmed up there for the energy while we go through the rest. Much academic advice proceeds by career stage or relies on the holy trinity of research, teaching, and service. But the issues that arise seem to me best addressed in terms of the roles each of us plays in different kinds of projects. So are you organizing something? Are you being, being invited to participate in somebody else's project? Um, or are you observing something without being directly involved? Many of the same considerations arise in writing a book or a dissertation, putting together a syllabus, and organizing a panel or a lecture series. Similarly, deciding whether to contribute to a journal special issue raises many of the same concerns as being invited to speak at a conference. And as participants of various in various kinds of institutions and scholarly networks, we're also frequently observers of projects in which we're not directly involved. How we respond in such cases requires a different set of calculations. So today I'm going to say something brief about organizing, and I'm going to say something uh, brief about observing, and devote just a little bit more attention to being invited. First, organizing. Ensuring inclusive and gender-balanced results in projects as different as writing a book, composing a syllabus, organizing a conference, you did a really wonderful job here, um, or editing some kind of collective publication requires a carefully thought through process, substantial groundwork, lots of advanced planning, and perseverance. A lot of lead time because there will be many, many, many stumbling blocks along the way. Um, like my Islamic Civ syllabus, um, many syllabi still include few or no women. Those of you at UNC, I know that's not the case. But many purportedly foundational Islamic studies texts continue to be by men who mostly cite other men. And this is not just an artifact of the past. Some today's must talk about works um, continue to replicate those patterns. Many series editors and journal editors are male. Um, and we replicate these kinds of erasures in our scholarship and in our event organizing unless we take deliberate action to bring non-male scholars and other folks who in some way are marginalized into the conversation. I also want to note that we're often ill-prepared to organize things, let alone consider gender and other forms of demographic balance when we do so. Um, they don't teach a class in how to organize a conference. Having good intentions helps, but it's not a skill nor is it um, a defense when we get it wrong. Deliberate strategies and adjustments to current processes can help turn intentions into better professional practices. Second, 
is being invited. Much of our work as scholars involves putting ourselves forward for something, right? Answering a call for proposals, submitting an article for peer review, applying for a job. But there are, and there will be increasingly for those of you in the audience who are graduate students and junior faculty as you go forward in your career, uh, opportunities that arrive via unsolicited invitation. These can be very tricky to decide about, um, especially when you have concerns about inclusion. And obviously, these decisions also hinge on lots of other things, like the accessibility of the travel, how the task aligns with or distracts from your other professional obligations um, and your family obligations. It's also the case that for those who work in Islamic studies, especially if they also work on something potentially controversial like gender or race or militancy, um, it's necessary to consider whether the event or the forum or the publication they're being invited to participate in, including being interviewed by a journalist, will be framed in such a way as to make nuance impossible. Um, and you have to think about what the blowback will be. Um, if you're going to be on the job market soon, that may be uh, a reason to think about declining. So here's something to note that wasn't obvious to me for many years, so you can benefit um, from my eons of experience. A response to an invitation doesn't have to be yes or no. You can say, please tell me more, or it depends, right? There are polite and non-accusatory ways to ask about an event you're invited to participate in or a project for which your contribution is being solicited. It's perfectly reasonable to ask for more details, including about other participants. Um, I usually thank them for the invitation and then explain why I'm asking. Ask and explain. Um, so for me, it sounds like a wonderful event. Can you tell me more about who else will be at the symposium or speaking as part of the lecture series or contributing to the volume? Um, as you may know, I don't participate in all white events or contribute to overwhelmingly male edited volumes, so my decision will hinge in part on who else has confirmed participation. And confirmed participation is really important because they'll give you a list of all the people they invited, none of whom said yes, right? So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, now, that's what I do as someone senior who's not dependent on building a CV for professional advancement, right? You can still ask for more information, even if, as a junior scholar, you cannot afford professionally, or if they're offering to pay you financially, to turn down an invitation. You can express concern about parity in representation without suggesting that your participation actually hinges on the specifics. So you could say something really anodyne like, I trust that in constructing your invitee list, you've considered diversity and inclusion, right? That's a pretty milquetoast response, and it shouldn't get you disinvited from anything. Um, or say you're a man and you've decided to participate no matter the makeup of the slate. You know, perhaps you're worried about antagonizing a senior scholar who's organizing something. You still can directly name your concern. Thank you for the invitation. I'd be pleased to join you. I hope the full participants list will be gender balanced. I'd hate to end up on an all-male panel. Should the organizers have failed to consider this point, um, and you would be surprised how often organizers fail to consider this point, your response will remind them to do so. Um, it will be the flashing light that says, 
panic, right? Now, they're panicking, and perhaps they reach out to a young woman scholar of color. Because of concerns about being labeled a token, some scholars may hesitate to accept a last-minute uh, invitation from those same panicky organizers who somehow just only realized that they have this uh, imbalance. Now, they need to take lessons from the people who put this conference together. Right? They really did a wonderful job. Tokenization reflects badly on the organizers, not on you. But perhaps you worry that others will assume that your presence owes to your identity rather than your work. And it is possible that someone at the event will be hostile or dismissive. Um, sometimes people aren't nice. Usually, though, only the organizers will know that your invitation came late. Most participants and audience members will be blissfully unaware of the behind-the-scenes wrangling that went on in the lead-up to the conference. Um, and it took me also a long time to realize this. Even if the invitation arises from a shamefully belated attempt to avoid bad optics, you'll still be there. Your work will still have a chance to shine. The chance to present lays the groundwork for you as the scholar and for the inviting group to build their own more inclusive networks going forward. And in the section on organizing, I say more about how they should grovel and also explain what they're going to do to prevent the same problem from occurring in the future. Now, I just want to pause for a minute to note that the language of tokenization suggests that some invitations are based on identity, while others come from an entirely objective assessment of the quality of the scholar and the scholarship. Um, that is nonsense, right? As religion scholar and freelance higher ed writer and editor Kelly Baker puts it, meritocracy is a lie. Consciously or not, invitations are made on the basis of contacts, right? Maybe you went to grad school with somebody or a sense of balance, right? We need someone who does X century or studies Y social group or a particular sense of the topic. Um, and remember what I sound, said earlier about how the bounds of Islamic legal studies or Quranic studies are drawn. So that's one reason why those organizing things should be transparent about their selection criteria. Now, what if you agree to do something and realize after the fact, as I did not too long ago, you've ended up on a panel you'd rather not be on? I ended up on an all-white panel as a respondent in a different graduate student conference. There are a range of possible responses. You can withdraw your participation, and you can be direct about why, or you can give a different reason. If you didn't make your concerns about inclusion clear in advance, you're on slightly shaky ground here. Um, but if you're going to withdraw, the sooner you do it, the better. Um, or you can raise the issues, and organizers may surprise you. Um, astonishing as it may seem, I will reiterate, it's possible that the organizers failed to think about the constitution of a particular panel. Now, let me give a slightly different example since it's AAR proposal season. Say you are a cis male graduate student and you submit to AAR and find yourself on an all-male panel, though not in the Islam units because of something I'll say more about in a minute. You might write back, thank them for accepting your paper, and express both your excitement to have been included and your discomfort with being on an all-male panel. You hope, 
you write in your note, that even if it's too late to make any changes for this year, and I'll note again that it might not be actually, a surprising amount happens in the months between the initial acceptance and the actual conference, um, that in the future they'll consider gender balance as they put panels together. Now, sometimes an event that you really want to do would violate a personal policy, and I've written emails that say so explicitly, um, saying, I'd love to join this panel, the speakers you have lined up are all white, I try not to take part in all white events. If something changes in the participants list, I'd be pleased to join you. At other times, I've responded along the following lines. What a fascinating topic. I'm very interested. However, it's my policy not to be the only woman on a program with seven other male speakers. I'd be happy to suggest names of other non-male scholars you might invite alongside or instead of me. And that alongside or instead of um, is language I saw somebody using somewhere and picked up and have found very, very useful. Now, you have to be prepared to get left out if you send this email. On the other hand, at least once, I've had organizers extend and pay international travel for a colleague of color when I suggested to them that they might want to rethink the lineup of the conference. They simply hadn't known about his work, which speaks, again, to the broader problem of networks. Now, as a junior person, you have less leeway to take these kinds of stands or make these kinds of asks. If you're tenured, you should be doing this kind of work. Um, such emails may or may not make a difference at the event in question, but if organizers get enough responses like these, they'll eventually make inclusion a central part of their planning process. Which brings me to my third category, observing. Chances are for now that the graduate students in the room are observing more than you're being invited. What can you do if you notice something about to happen or just starting to happen that is needlessly exclusionary? I'll give a small example. A recent call for papers for an Islamic studies conference declared the eligibility of advanced doctoral students and professors to present. It was meant to exclude MA students and those doing early doctoral coursework. But what it actually did in its language was to exclude those with PhDs who are in postdocs or who teach as visiting scholars or work in university administration or labor as independent scholars. The call equated being post-PhD with having a faculty job. Because of the casualization of the professoriate, this call was elitist. White women and scholars of color of all genders are disproportionately represented in non-tenure track positions. So it effectively privileged white men. Now, independent and underemployed and unemployed scholars already contend with lack of access, not only to secure faculty jobs, but also the things that come along with that. Conference funding, library resources, adequate salaries, health insurance, I, I could go on. This call, explicitly, though unintentionally, barred them from being full participants in a scholarly meeting. Now, contingency will not be resolved by editing a call for papers. And you may not feel like you can do anything about it. But someone who was left out by this framing reached out to me when I publicized the call without reading it very closely. Uh, I took less than five minutes to draft an email to the organizers. This person didn't feel like they could do it directly, and the language got changed, and the revised call was circulated. Now, at least one person who didn't fit the initial description 
ultimately presented at the conference. I'm more attuned to reading this kind of language, which didn't register for me the first time I read it through. And hopefully those involved will take more care next time they draft something like this. So to begin to wrap up, I want to draw some connections. One thing is very clear. All change begins with observation. Offering unsolicited opinions as a bystander, being asked for advice when you're organizing something, organizing something yourself, being asked to participate in someone else's project. For all of those things, you need to be aware of patterns. Make a habit of checking who wrote the blurbs on the books that you read. Attend to who's being cited in the readings you're assigned. Observe who gets named in the text and who doesn't. Look at conference programs. Maybe you never noticed these dynamics before, or maybe you had vague inklings, but no actual sense of the data. Investigate for yourself. Look at your own published and in-progress work. Look at that of your mentors, your idols, your peers, and your students. Sometimes you can make a reasonable case for why there might be an all or nearly all uh, male panel or anthology, but I would like to see su such justifications as really rare and never a default. In some fields, one has to do far more groundwork to get balance than in others. Um, this applies not only to organizing panels, but also to writing projects. Now, when things are out of balance in other people's projects, as with any endeavor to command right and forbid wrong, how you proceed depends on who you are, who they are, and what relationship between you exists, if any. To put this at its simplest, if you are a securely employed man in the audience at an all-male panel, I suggest that during the Q&A, you ask why they held an all-male panel. Fire alarms, it has been observed, matter less for telling you there, there is a fire than for telling you it's socially acceptable to react. When only a few marginalized individuals speak up about pervasive patterns of exclusion, it feels safe to ignore them. When only women and non-binary people speak up about gender imbalance, their observations are dismissed as sour grapes. Change begins when enough people notice and name and question absences and exclusions in events, in scholarly publications, in media appearances, in syllabi, uh, when we read things, when we review things, when we hear them. Um, this is not just a matter of calling folks out publicly. This is a matter of supporting folks collegially. We can all do better with this. It needs to be possible to have conversations about those absences that don't get mired in a defensive reaction. Now, if somebody critiques your publication and it's the last time you're ever going to publish anything, be offended and withdraw. But if you're expecting to continue to publish, then learn. If that, that Islamic law syllabus that had five books by men was the last thing I was ever going to teach, it would be fine not to learn from that and not to change that. 
But since it's a class I'm intending to teach a number of times going forward, I feel like it behooves me to do better. Now, we can't neatly separate individual and collective solutions. I'm not going to put them in a binary. But it's really important to think about the relationship and the balance between the two. We don't want to put the onus always on individual scholars to respond to bad behavior publicly or work frantically behind the scenes to stave off events that are exclusionary. So some organizations, including the Islam program units at the American Academy of Religion, have policies in place. Their rule, for instance, is panels have to have gender diversity. But firm rules and quotas aren't always the answer. The proliferation, and I say this as somebody who's now chairing a department, of policies, indexes, and metrics, and compliance documentations, and assessments um, can be a distraction from and an obstacle to transformative work. But simply relying on people's good intentions or collective sensibilities is not a full and complete answer either. I want to conclude by saying there is no silver bullet solution for gender inequality in the academy or in Islamic studies specifically. But there are mutually reinforcing strategies. In the same way that exclusions beget exclusions, so too beginning to connect certain kinds of dots leads to increasingly inclusive networks. All of this change begins with the acknowledgement that when we invite and when we assign and when we cite and when we recommend, we promote some rather than others. Choices are unavoidable. Hmm, somebody made choices. Whose work we amplify and whose we ignore is political as well as intellectual. Choosing not to think about inclusivity and parity is also a political choice. We choose from our own situated positions, with our own histories, with our own networks, and our own mix of resources. Within Islamic studies, what and how we teach, who and how we cite, how we frame our work, how we evaluate other scholarship, how we choose our collaborators, how we listen, how we engage, and how we challenge and subvert dominant modes of scholarly life are all ways of intervening. All of these things can lead to further exclusion or they can help us build and sustain humane systems of knowledge production and circulation inside and outside the academy. Thank you. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com. 
or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.